Okay, it's um, Thursday, July the 30th, 2015. It's 11 o'clock a.m. My name is John Crookshank, and I'm interviewing Jewel Walker Harps. Um, so, could you please start off by uh, telling me where you were born, where you grew up? Um, I'm Jewel Walker Harps. I was born in 1939 in a small rural town called Glenville, Georgia, southeast Georgia. I was born on and born and raised on a farm, so I had, I've had all of the experiences that a farm girl would have in the country. And so you grew up there, and um, how many years were you on this farm? How many years did you live well, there? Well, I went to school there at a time that was different from what it is now, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you a little later about the experiences of mm -hmm. growing up and attending school in a segregated uh, era. I left there and went to Morris Brown College in Atlanta, Georgia, and from there, in 1961, I came to Griffin and stayed for 35 years working as an educator in the Griffin Spalding County School System. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about your family now. I mean, did you have any siblings? Um, where were your parents from? Did they grow up on that farm? Yes, I had a brother. And I don't really know very much about where my parents grew up, except my paternal grandmother uh, had a farm herself. Matter of fact, she had many acres. And I can remember very vividly that she lived in this great big house with columns and a wraparound porch, hmm. surrounded by many uh, pecan trees as well as live oaks because it was in what we call at that time the low country. Mm -hmm. The land was flat and uh, the vegetation indicated that you were in the palmettos. The vegetation mm -hmm. indicated that you were in, in that part of the country. So I can remember very well playing in the yard under the trees, sitting on the porch on a rocking chair. Mm -hmm. And of course we were near the highway so Often we would go down just in front of the house and sit beside the road and watch the cars and the buses and what have you pass. So that's all. I do also remember that she had lots and lots of good things in the yard to eat. She had fig trees, plum trees, and a huge, about the size of a football field, grape arbor, muscadines. We call them grapes, but they were really muscadines. Uh, and of course, we had the same thing at home. We had a muscadine uh, arbor, which was also about the size of a football field, mm. so that the neighborhood children and the neighborhood, everybody waited and looked forward to that time of the year because they were open to uh, not only family but friends as well who would come by, mm -hmm. and some of them would want to pick and others would want us to pick. I mean, we were children. So we did it the old-fashioned way. I'm sure uh, they would not do that today. My dad had a sheet made out of burlap, and we would spray it under the uh, part of the grape arbor, and then we would shake the vine, and they would fall, and we would just have a good time. So all was not bad. But uh, a little while ago, I remember, talking to a kid and asking her what had she done while she was on her trip in Costa Rica, and she said that one of the things was to milk cows. I said, well, could you milk a cow? And she said, no. I said, well, I couldn't, but I grew up on a farm, and I had all of those experiences. I had to try to milk a cow. I never, I never learned, mm -hmm. but uh, milking a cow, killing hogs was a ritual. It was not just a family thing, but it was a community factor. So I know all about how you kill a hog and how you put him up on the galisters and cut him open and pull out the, what you do with the intestines, what we call intestines, but uh, what and the finished product became chitlins. Mm. Uh, I can see my mom now as she takes a knife and kind of pulls them apart. and. 
run the water, push them down so that all of the uh, waste would come out and uh, run them through the water and what have you. And then uh, we would take the thin ones and put on what we call a sausage machine and stuff them. And they became sausage that we would hang in the, uh, in the smokehouse. Hmm. And <laughs> they would drip and dry. And along with the lard, we didn't do it. There was no problem using lard when we were growing up. My grandmother grew up on fatback and lard and what have you, but she lived to be 96 years old. So we didn't have all of the cholesterol issues and what uh -huh. have you. Uh -huh. So I don't want to go on and on and on. So <laughs> I suppose something else. <laughs> so, um, so you lived there till approximately what age? When did you move to oh. go away to? Take your courses. I was an average education. student. I, was, I did not graduate early. I was just an average student, so I guess it would have been, I guess, about 17. But mm. before that time, I had gone to uh, New York for the summers. Oh, okay. And yeah, mm -hmm. extended families mm -hmm. uh, were important mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. They may not be so important now, but you were practically raised. By your aunts and your uncles, and especially yeah. if they lived elsewhere, it meant that you had a, you had an opportunity to have a summer vacation somewhere else, and that applied to me. My mom's oldest sister would always take me to New York for the summer, so I actually had an experience of attending school in Brooklyn, huh. Brooklyn College. Of course, I didn't stay because I was, as I said, I was from the country, and from a rural, segregated school. Mm -hmm. So the big city of New York did not did not have that appeal to me. In other words, uh, it took me a while to adjust. I enjoyed the recreational part, but I was not really academically prepared for, for going to school at Brooklyn College. So I came back home uh, and went to Morris Brown. Mm -hmm. So how long were you in New York when you did this? Well, I went during the summers. I, would, I, I went several summers. I see. Yeah. So when, and once I graduated from high school, I stayed until it was time to go to school, go to college, and I started, and I didn't like it. So they started earlier than they did at home. So mm -hmm. I rushed back home to get in um, school at Morris Brown. Did you find any significant differences between how you were raised in the South versus how things were when you went up north for the summers? Yes. Can you share some of those differences? Yes. Uh, very, very different. The environment was different. Uh, I remember traveling along the road and I thought that the entire area from home to New York was going to simply be city. But then I discovered that there were rural areas someplace other than at my house. So as I took the bus trip. but. Uh, I had an opportunity to ride the subway. I'd never seen or been in a subway uh, station, nor had I ever been able to go outside and look up at all of the apartment houses, no yards, houses and streets. And, and the most, I lived in Harlem. So um, there were people on the streets, there were people hanging out on the on the walkways and uh, as you go on the steps, as you go up. What we ate was different. I was accustomed to grits. They were accustomed to potatoes. Uh, seasoning, I couldn't stand garlic, but everything that my aunt cooked in New York had garlic. And she said, that's the only way you can eat the stuff here uh, is to season it well because it's not as fresh as farm uh, uh, products are. Mm. So I learned to ride the subway. It was not as dangerous as it is now, so it was not difficult for me to ride alone at night. Then I had my first job. That is why my social security number is so different from others around here, because I got my social security card and, uh, in New York mm. and worked at a uh, it wasn't a fruit stand, but it was kind of in what we would call the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. It was a friend who took me under his wing and taught me how to be a little salesperson. I was just about a, uh, maybe a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. So the experiences were different. 
uh, we traveled on weekends. My aunt and uncle belonged to a lot of activities, belonged to a lot of lodges and what have you. So every weekend we had an opportunity to go to Asbury Park, Coney Island, mm. or some recreational place that I had not had, uh, that I had not been. So it was it was uh, fun. I just found that academically I was not as prepared, or I had not mm -hmm. had I did not have the study habits. I had not had the exposure uh, that uh, mm -hmm. others had who had come from a much larger uh, larger area. Mm -hmm. But yes, it was an entirely different kind of life. But it sounds like it was a very positive experience, though. It was. It, it was. And I had not, I guess that's why I'm so generous now to my nieces and nephews and to even non-family members because I realized that I would never have had the experiences and the growth that mm -hmm. I had if others had not contributed to mm -hmm. my life. So. Moving on then later when you when you started your your studies in education right uh, with education right um, yes at um, Marston was it College? Morris Brown Mar Morris Brown um, and that was because I was an African American Episcopal Church member I grew up in the African American Episcopal Church and Morris Brown was uh, an African American uh, Episcopal supported school. So that is why I went there rather than going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then, um, let's see, so you, you were there? Yeah, I, I was there. I, I didn't graduate early and I didn't want to leave college. College is the best thing that happened to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I was anxious to graduate from high school even though I had had good high school experience. Uh, I was a queen one year, and well, I was pretty popular, So, but I didn't want to leave college. That was a great life. So that was quite a change, quite a switch from your New York experience. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, I what could relate to that. Sounds a lot more positive. It um, was. It, it was. I could relate to that. And there were other children, many more children, who came from small places in Georgia, mm -hmm. So, and whose friendship I still maintain. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. I, my best my roommate now lives in in California mm -hmm. and comes uh, about yearly uh, to visit. But it was something that I could adapt to, and that's why it's so important that we keep those schools that made it possible for us to have an education. Because I would have been lost, totally lost, had I had to go to a larger school. Mm -hmm. But. Um, that made education accessible to those of us who would not have had that opportunity. So this brings us into the early 60s, is that right? Um, well, yes, the early 60s, 1961 is when I came to uh, Griffin. And my reason for coming to Griffin was the fact that one of my instructors who had become a very good friend was from Griffin, Samuel Du Bois Cook. And he wanted me to come to Griffin. And I came to Griffin, the first place I saw was Spring Hill. So that was not very enticing at that time. Spring Hill was a lot of blight and whatever. I said, well, everybody in Griffin could not live like they live on Spring Hill. But uh, I applied also to Columbus Public School System and I was accepted. As a matter of fact, and I just accepted. They called me several times to want to know why I did not, I was not going to come, but I decided to stay in Griffin, unfortunately, and I'm still here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't understand. Why did you not go to Columbus? Uh, I don't really know, except maybe I thought it was more convenient to be near. I really wanted to go work in Fairburn, but mm -hmm. I had to compete with another girl who graduated from high school in Fairburn. Mm -hmm. And there were just the two of us at the top of the list, and of course she had an age on me. Oh. So my life would have been different had I gotten my first job in Fairburn and worked in Atlanta because I lived in the city at that time. Mm -hmm. So I never would have had the experiences that I've had in Griffin. Mm -hmm. But that's why I did not go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to. Can I ask go ahead. Yeah, what was your first job here? Uh, my first job here at Griffin was 
a seventh or eighth grade teacher at Fairmont High School. Hmm. Under the uh, principalship of C.W. Daniels, who is now deceased. Oh, yeah. Yes. What size school was it uh, at that time? Well, it's it's about the same size as it is now, except uh, it's not Fairmont. It's called. It's used the same building. That's the building that was there when I came to Griffin. That's there now. They have had an addition to it, but my classroom was on the end, uh, right next to the garden. There were two of us, Felton Stringer, who is now deceased, and myself had that wing. And boy, did we not enjoy it because it was away from everybody else. And uh, we did enjoy I was young, and my students were just about my age. They may be three or four years, two, three or four years older than I was. And they were bigger. They were big boys. And boy, was it tough. But interesting. Now, a lot of times when you come into uh, a new school situation, uh, you have the academic courses that you teach, but you also have extracurricular activities that you uh, do as a, as a teacher. Yes, we had the Y Club. I was a part of the Y Club. Uh, and something else, I don't exactly remember what the others were, but I also remember that we had extracurricular activities that we had to supervise for like sports. Boy, that's why I don't go to football games and basketball games today because I had no choice. When I worked in the segregated school, we all had to go. We all had to be on, on duty. You didn't have a choice. We also had to do home visits. All of my students got to know me, got to introduce me to their parents because my principal insisted that uh, we go to visit students at home and become a part of the community. So home and church, school were all connected. Uh, my first principal, C.W. Daniels, was of the old school uh, sort of rigid but good. Uh, I left, I was one of those teachers who left there and went to Kelsey. Now, Kelsey is the site of the Rosenwald School. We didn't know that at that time. But as I visit, I often, when we were over there doing the garden at, at the beginning, once we found out that's what it was, I had an opportunity to go back into my old classroom and kind of get a feeling of having been there in the 1960s. We left, I left there when the schools were integrated. There were certain teachers picked who were considered to be the best of the of the rest, you might say, and uh, were set to working in the schools that were white. And I was one of those teachers. Boy, did I hate to go! But the interesting thing about it, they didn't just pick me. Somebody came over to observe me. That was the kind of the demeaning part of it. They sent somebody from what was then Racer to observe Bob Flanagan, a great big guy. i never forget, I stepped in the hall at the end of one of my class period. There was this man standing beside my door. What are you doing here? He came to observe me. Uh, I remember that class period even to now. I can remember some of the students who were in the class. And they did a good job for me. I guess they, he was satisfied. But anyway, my name was submitted to go to uh, the middle, well, middle school, it wasn't, I don't think it was called middle school then, but it was. And everybody just went all out of his way to make me feel comfortable. I'll never forget uh, Russell Gray, who was then the principal. His daughter happened to have been in my, in my class. But it was an experience, that transition was. The teachers and the principals all went out of their way to make you feel comfortable. And believe it or not, I didn't have a problem with, uh, uh, with the students. It was not so bad, but I was scared to death. Not necessarily scared of the people, but scared of the, of the unknown. And hating to leave where I was because it had become kind of a family. And I didn't want to break up with my friends, my staff people, and go to some place that was totally 
uh, knew and not have anybody that I thought I could talk to. But it worked out and I survived. How long did yeah, how long did it take you to start getting a certain comfort level there, you know, start feeling comfortable? Uh, well, not too long because I was always kind of confident in myself. So mm -hmm. it was not, had I been a weekly, it probably would have been different. Mm -hmm. But I would say that I adjusted quite well. But the help was there for us, as I said. It could have been more difficult had the principal been a different kind of person. Mm -hmm. Because after staying there for a few years, I went back to graduate school and got another degree. And uh, they were going, there was a position open at one of the elementary schools for a media specialist. And I applied. Mm -hmm. Well, the principal did not want me. I was black, and she did not wish to have. It was a new school, and of course, a black woman was not going to come in and occupy that school. She was just getting rid of the, the black lady who was there when the, the first year that school was open. This was the second year, and she did not wish to have me. So she set me up. Uh, Tommy Jones, who was the assistant superintendent, scheduled me for an interview. So at the time for me to go, she called and said I could not come. She she did she had something else to do. I could not come, and she was supposed to call me back at another time. Well, she never did. Tommy Jones understood and realized what was happening. He said, "Well, she doesn't want her, but she's going to go anyway." I said, "But I don't want to go anyway." <laughs> but I went anyway. I went anyway, and that was my first blatant experience, I guess, with uh, uh, discrimination on on the job. Huh. Uh, it was very obvious that she did not wish to have me, and it would probably have been different had I been a classroom teacher, but I was the media specialist, and that kind of set me apart from everybody else because I had an office, I had a place of my own, so and that I had made an it office. bearable anyway. Yes, yeah. Yeah. but uh, it was difficult to get janitorial service yeah. because... Uh -huh of expecting me to do it to be not my own uh, custodian. Uh, I had to fight to get the newspaper. The newspaper would come to the office, and uh, well, she would make sure that she got it. They kept it in the office. And uh, well, being me, with the strength that I had, I insisted that it be where it was supposed to be. So I had to threaten to go downtown to uh, Tommy Jones in order to get possession of the newspaper. So these were just little things that uh, worked. But strangely enough, uh, before she died and before she retired, we became friends. She, for some reason or another, started to like me. And I don't know whether it was because I proved to be, in her mind, competent or whether the times were changing everywhere. Like, was that a really rapid change, or did that just sort Gradual. Of very gradual, gradual over years? Over, yeah. over some years, huh. yes, over some years. Well, she was an older lady, mm -hmm. so it would have taken her some, some time. Just set in her ways? And, uh, yes, yeah. mm -hmm. uh -huh. yes. I'll never forget the, the time that the tale was told. It was not really a tale, it was true. We had an ice storm. And at her church, there was a black custodian. She slipped and fell on the ice, and he went to help her get up. And she, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, get away from me. Uh -huh. The fear. Uh, and and it, was, it was told in a joking way, but it was really a fact. It actually happened. But that was the attitude that existed during that period of time. We would have uh, Christmas luncheons at the Holiday Inn, and there were, oh, maybe four or five who looked like me, and no other seats except the seat beside one of us. So she preferred to walk around and eat rather than to have a seat uh, next to one of us. So these little, little things that you had to contend with. And this would have been, what, by mid-60s now yes, we're talking? Yes, yeah. we're talking mid-60s. Um, and did it get much better? I mean, oh, in yes. the 70s? Yes, 70, it did. It yeah. did. It get, well, people began to know people as people. Okay. Yeah, it got much better. Hmm. Uh, as you got to know the person, you saw the inside of that person. Yeah. And even the most staunch-hearted 
uh, segregationists hmm. had some humanity hmm. about them, and you know you, you could eventually win win them over. But did it ever go beyond just being able to get along? Did, did it ever progress to a point so someone who you had really difficulty with, you actually became yes. friends? Uh, yes. I had had difficulty with her. And when I was sick, I was out for six weeks because of surgery. She came to my house to visit me and brought me food and whatever. Huh. So I guess it did get to that point where uh, one could look at the other and realize that that person was simply a human being. So, so it sounds to me like um, a lot of the friction that goes on racially maybe is just a matter of just not knowing people. Is it that simple? Oh, I agree. Yeah. Not knowing people and then going back to families, parents, grandparents, great-great-grandparents <coughs> who lived uh, in areas where people of color were submissive. It was a way of life, mm -hmm. and a good way of life to many of them. Now, not all of them were, were wealthy, mm -hmm. but they still considered themselves to be better than we were. Mm -hmm. It was even better in rural areas than in uh, the more urban areas, because when I was growing up at home, we had lots of tobacco uh, farms, so we all went to the tobacco fields to work. So when the truck came by to pick up, whosoever was on the, on the route, the truck picked you up and you hopped on the back of the truck. Whatever color you were, you hopped on the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. When it was time to have water or whatever, you drank from the same uh, water. Mm -hmm. Even though if you had gone into a, a city or town at that time, there was white water that, and black water, and you had to go to the black water fountain. Was, but yeah. uh, it was a little bit different in that, in, in that area, more family-like. If something happened to you and your family, well, white folk came to your aid, too. So you're, in the rural community, you're more, there are, not as many sort of artificial barriers that keep you apart. You yes. sort of live together yes. a bit more. You yes. get closer yes. and you get to Definitely. know people better. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Huh. Going back to your time at Fairmont Junior High School, mm -hmm. and as you transition to the integrated high school or mm -hmm. integrated school, mm -hmm. What were the major differences you saw between the segregated school versus the integrated school? Uh, the quality of teaching, uh, the flexibility. Our principals were much more rigid and much more uh, by the book. And I guess they had to be because they had to. They did, they were not given the same flexibility as a, as a, a white principal, so they had to hold us to a different a different standard. Uh, mainly, and resources were different. Uh, the availability of resources in that school were much different from the school that I had previously attended or uh, worked. And what we did have, we had to struggle. We had to have strong principles because there was always that need for that principal to be downtown fighting a battle for the rest of us in order to get the supplies and opportunities that we were entitled to. So kids today just assume that it's a natural thing, but it was a real struggle for us. So when you talk about resources, can you be a little bit more specific? Uh, uh, books, audiovisual materials, uh, even down to sports uh, items. It was what we had was often uh, hand-me-down or non-existent. So it was, it, was really, it was really different. But on the other hand, our children fared much better because we knew, we knew their needs. And we were mommy, nurse, doctor, uh, preacher, we were everything to those children. We didn't just look at teaching them uh, numbers and letters and what have you. We taught them life skills. We taught them discipline or how to live in the world, which changed once the schools were integrated. So they benefited. It was 
they benefited tremendously from having uh, teachers who looked like them, who knew their parents, who had the same values as their parents, uh, and who took them as their children. You lost that personal touch once the schools were integrated. Well, see, we could even, uh, they just kind of gave you, and I, at, I, at that time, uh, black parents just kind of, they trusted you. Teachers were revered, you might say. There was nothing more important in a community than a teacher uh, and a preacher. We were the top of the cream of the crop. So uh, we set the standards, and we lost this when, we, when the schools integrated. Our children lost it. What, what's your sense of? And I don't know if you have data, but what's your sense of, of kids graduating in, when you were had the segregated school versus uh, after uh, schools were it, integrated? It was important. Nobody thought about not graduating from school, not continuing school. Uh, you didn't have teenage pregnancy as you have now because it was a disgrace. You were ostracized if that happened to you. Mommy and Daddy hurriedly got you sent someplace. It was not before today, uh, once the schools were integrated and we lost a sense of value of ourselves, uh, this way of life became more acceptable. It's no longer frowned upon. But then it was. Children wore socks, whereas children wear uh, the same age level now, wear holes and tights and leggings and whatever. You were a child and you remained a child. That's, that's what it was about. So uh, to, to go to school, it was important. I can remember when I was growing up uh, on the farm, there were things that we had to do. My parents would schedule their farm activities around my test at school. If you were having a test the next day, no matter what they had planned on to do on the farm and needed your help, you did not stay home and work. You went to school. It was a, it was a high value. Of, uh, of importance. So yes, that type was different. You could say to children what you cannot say to them uh, now. They had respect for you as an adult. And even when I came to work as an adult in Griffin, when I encounter the children now, today, who were with me at Fairmont, it is a different uh, mindset. They are always very mannerable, no matter what they are doing before I arrive. Once I arrive, is uh, Miss Walker, because that's what I was there, that's what they know me as. Miss Walker, yes ma'am, no ma'am. I can always tell a child who went to Fairmont, because that is their, their, their mannerism. No matter how bad they are, they still have that respect for you, because you were their teacher. Talk a little bit about Jim's uh, social, uh, how, how you socialized prior to integration. There were, there were, you were off limits in restaurants. Um, yes. I often hear about parades uh, that were held uh, here in Griffin uh, with, I guess, the high school. What, what was just the social situation? It was phenomenal. <laughs> we looked forward to homecoming, especially, or any of the games. Now, I do, if you want to get uh, bring somebody alive. You mentioned the Griffin. You you mentioned the football team or the band, uh, the Fairmont band or the football team for uh, Fairmont. It's still looked upon as being something of class. The majorettes. The whole community was involved when homecoming time came. The sports. We didn't. You didn't just have cars riding. We spent days putting together sports, but the joy of working together. Proms were held in the gym, and it was, a, it was a big deal because the fun was not necessarily in the dance at the end of the day, but what you did to make the preparations and the uh, interaction with each other. So as adults, in the adult community, we only had the VFW and American Legion for social activities. There wasn't a club when I came to Griffin called the Cavaliers, which all of the prominent uh, men were a part of. And as a teacher, you would automatically get invited to the socials that the Cavaliers had. So that was an event to look forward to. Uh, Eden, down and out, well, you, you went to Atlanta that they were 
permanent, well, prominent places in Atlanta. But here we had Raymond Head, well, we had Triple H, the Head brothers. Raymond Head, Otis Head, Philip Head had uh, a restaurant. Well, it was not really what you would call today a restaurant, but it was an idiot. Well, everybody went to, uh, everybody went there. Then they had little places that you went to pick up stuff. They call them a hole in the walls or whatever, or you went to the back door. You paid the same amount of money, but you did not have the same dignity as others. You had to go to the back door and pick up through this little window and pick up whatever it was that you ordered. But uh, it was a close-knit community. As I said, you had private parties. We played cards a lot, those persons who played cards at houses. And you drank your beer, you did whatever you wanted to do. But social activities centered around basically the VFW and American uh, Legion. What else you want to know? How, how, did, how did integration come about in, in, in Griffin? Was that something that the state imposed? Was it volunteer, that yeah. We, the plan was a volunteer plan. And I don't know exactly now. I do have uh, a part of, of it, but it was not one of those forced kind of things. It was a volunteer. Pressure, of course, uh, because you, you knew you had to do it. But it was not like they came in and said, this is exactly how you, you must do it. I can remember when we were working on some kind of plan, and Thelma Davis, who was a very prominent educator, very, very prominent. Everybody knew, everybody in Griffin, everybody in the state of Georgia knew Thelma Davis. William Walker was my principal. And I had not been going, I had been going, but I didn't participate really as fully as she thought that I should. And she told, she went to him and told him that uh, whatever she wanted done, I didn't do it. I was not put, I was not performing the way she wanted me to perform. You know what he did? He pulled all of his, he pulled everybody together, said this is what we we're going to do, and put whatever it was that she said she wanted, we put it together. He put it together as a you know, a staff. In other words, this is not going to happen to to us. You're not going to be able to reflect negatively on any of us because we will make it happen. Uh, he was hard on us. We had to we had to really work. We couldn't say kids couldn't learn. Every child could learn. His expression was always, "If a child does not learn, then you are not teaching." <laughs> so nobody wanted to be considered not teaching. He would walk through the hall and say, what is that you have on a bulletin board? That's not a teaching board. I guess what I'm saying is the interest of making sure that our children receive the best that we possibly could give them at that time, we did. You didn't shug and jive. You didn't fool around in the classroom. You produced. So, now, recently, I mean, in the past couple of decades, um, what have you been doing? Taking care of everybody's business at mine. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, very community. You're, you're currently head of the NAAC. Griffin Branch, NAACP. Right. And I have been there for 20-plus years in a leadership role. I became active openly with the NAACP where no other professional in Griffin would dare. It was not the thing that you did because you could be, you could experience retaliation. You did not, you did not do that. But I did. I became not just a card carrier member, but I became the secretary and I actually ran it for, well, early in my experience because the president relied on me to be the secretary and the treasurer and everything else. And uh, when he was elected to a county commissioner, then I, that put me officially in charge of it. So others would say, okay, I'll give you a donation or I'll take a membership, but nobody knew that they did. I was the only one who was a professional person in Griffin who dared to step out 
and say, this is who I am, this is what I am, this is what I believe should be the case. But now you're talking about, you said 20 years ago, so we're talking about 95 or something? Uh, well, we're talking about, I may, may have said 20 years, but before that time I was a member, an uh, active member, yeah. Before I became leadership, I was so even uh, even what in the eighties there was intimidation going on. Oh yeah, oh yes, yes. If you had a job, you 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 there were things that you did to make sure that nobody had anything on you that could be used against you. You wanted promotions, and you wanted security, and you had to get loans and whatever. You had to rely on the system, and those of us who did not, that's why the ministers in our community were so very, very important. The ministers and those persons who were self-supporting, like the insurance men, the service station men, people who survived from our income. We, we put them, set them apart, so to speak, so that they were more economically uh, independent. So when, so when we went to jail, then they could afford to get us out and not have to worry about somebody pulling the rug out from under them because they were not dependent upon the system. So how much have things changed since then? I mean, is there still much, any of this? Much, <laughs> The dollar became more important, <laughs> yeah. much. And education had a lot to do with it because even during the early days, there were those of us who succeeded. We had Dr. Relaford who is now deceased, uh, graduated and went off to medical school and came back here. So when I came to Griffin in the 60s, he was my doctor. So we had a few successes, well not just a few, uh, other than athletics. We all, we've always had a good football team. Griffin has been known for uh, its athletic powers, you might say. But there were lawyers. There were uh, professors, like I said, Dr. Samuel Du Bois Cook, his entire family was a family centered around education. So we, we survived in spite. Not only did we survive, but we grew. Mm -hmm. We prospered. The community did not have the same appearance as it has now. The blight and the deprivation that we experience now uh, no longer existed. In the same neighborhood where the Rosenwald School is, that was the booming uh, part of the city. When I came to Griffin, the more affluent uh, black people lived in that area. The yards were well kept, the houses were well kept, uh, and it was it was just the more the most elite part for uh, black people. Mm -hmm. And that's why we want to change it. We want to save it and we'll put in a lot of effort into restoring it. But as the older people died, uh, and the younger people inherited or what have you, they had not the same interests. Integration had it, its good part, but it also had its negative, and that's, that's where the negatives come in. The change in attitude uh, and the lack of self-sufficiency it was important to my parents that you have a roof over your head, that nobody could put you out. It might have been meager, but it was yours. And that you worked, you had good work ethics. Nobody loafed. And we had truant officers. So if you didn't go to school, the truant officer got you. <laughs> so uh, things were really, really different. So. Separate but equal, separate and unequal, really, is what it was. But um, you knew that you had to survive, and there was a great deal of faith in the, in the black community. People went to church and believed, and that was a sustaining force for our families. You didn't run off and leave your wife and your four or five children to fare for themselves. That was your responsibility. So hard work the church, all were significant parts of uh, the African-American family at home as well as here in Griffin. You mentioned um, 
the change in just the appearance, the physical appearance of the community? Do you attribute that to, to those change in values? Uh, or are there other? Very much so. The freedom to cross the line, so to speak, and uh, the younger people growing up with the lack of interest in the preservation of what their parents left. Businesses now which were thriving businesses at that time, the children have no interest in the, in the, in the family business, so it's kind of dissolved. Uh, and, and I attribute that to change of values that they subscribed to when they went to an integrated school. We had uh, service stations, we had prominent uh, embalmers, funeral home directors, beauty parlors, barber shops, uh, clean world cleaners was a landmark in, in Griffin. The boys had gone to Tuskegee, they were tailors, so people from across color lines brought their clothes to Cleanwell for Raymond Hay to alter. That business no longer, they died, and their children did not seem, uh, see fit to maintain the business. So even the name is gone. So there is, there is a difference. In other words, the, the need to have your own seem to disappear because now I don't have to have my own, I can go to yours, which is not such a good thing. Think of the funeral homes for an example, who you could not use a white funeral home. There was no choice. Everybody went to uh, the black funeral homes. There, was, there were mm, two or three, and they were very prominent families because of course, they were dependent upon black bodies, so it didn't matter whether they ruffled the feathers of the establishment because their income came from the black community. But now we don't even have a sense of, uh, of that because a large number of black families now tend to find a value in going to using the white funeral homes and taking the money out of the community. And that never would have happened in older days. They have no sense of history. That's another reason why it is so important that we do this uh, oral history project so that they can understand how they got where they are and the struggles that their parents and uh, grandparents and great-grandparents uh, had to endure in order for us to create our own and to establish for ourselves and to throw it away now is just, just terrible. It is unbelievable. But here again, there was a technique to that. You don't teach. You, 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 you don't, you don't, if we don't teach in our community, then it does not get taught. So our children are growing up not knowing. When I moved to the white school, we did not do black history month. There, of course, the, the facts about black people were not taught in the textbooks, so you did not take that week or that month to emphasize it. It was not until uh, Mr. White came to our school that uh, we were encouraged to do black history, to do bulletin boards and what have you. But then only black teachers did it. The white teachers did not do it, did not comply. So if you went to a white teacher, you perhaps did not recognize uh, Black History Month. I had a very, very diverse black collection in the media center. But once I left, the person who came behind me was no longer black and saw fit to take out all of that stuff and throw it away. And of course, that grieved me, but there was nothing that I could do. Throw it away along with my, uh, somebody saw fit to throw away my portrait. When I, when I retired, uh, some of my friends and the school did a portrait of me to hang in the media center. Well, I thought I'd go back over there and look at it, and it was not there. It was not there, but nobody could account for where it was or what had happened to it. But somebody had told me, well, your picture will never hang in this media center. And they were right. It never did. And I, that was all right with me, but I did want it to bring home, but then it was never retrieved. Do you see 
do you see much hope like for the future and um, getting back you know the teaching of you know black history and um, and know, this proper instruction in the schools in this community I'm I'm afraid and I often wonder and I think if we are going to self-destruct we're doing it for to ourselves uh, we are allowing the privilege we're taking advantage of the privileges and we are not uh, assuming any responsibility we are not accountable for what we are doing and it has my thought is that it has deteriorated our cultural level here in this city in terms of race. It's not what it was at the time, even during the 60s, even with the, with the uh, segregation. It's, it's just not the, the crime level, the lack of interest in education, particularly the lack of interest in education, is going to make a difference. And as a result, we're going to lose much of what we spent years trying to instill in our young people and build up. Surely someone's doing something. I mean, what, well, what we, are, we, 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 we are trying to. This is what we're doing here right. now. This is what we're doing with EPI, mm -hmm. trying to remedy that on a small scale as large as we can. But the apathy which exists within the community is of such that it's, it's, it's very difficult. Those who have achieved are not willing to look back and say, this is, this is where I've made it, this is how I've made it, so I'm going to give back. I'm going to be willing to reach down and help somebody else, bring somebody up and uh, uh, share. That's what happened to me. I didn't make it on my own. Do, do the teachers nowadays in the schools, um, African-American teachers, do they not understand this? No, apparently they don't. They retired to be retired, and that's the extent of it. Mm -hmm. They have grandchildren all their lives, and I don't know, they just don't. For some reason or another, we seem to have lost hope. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's just about time to wrap up for now. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention before mm -hmm. we wrap it up? No, I think we've covered a lot and I probably gave you more than you wanted but it was a joy to have had this experience and thank you so much for inviting me to share my memories. Well, I think this is a very good start and I hope that we can get you back here again soon to continue the story. So thank you very much for thank your you, John. valuable time. Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Bye.